You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. And tonight we're going to talk about a different kind of honor, which will be bestowed on another Baltimore Negro League baseball master. Next Saturday, April the 4th, that is, we're talking about Ben Taylor, who came to Baltimore in 1926 to become player-manager of the champion Baltimore Black Sox and remained a Baltimore resident until his death in 1953 when he was buried in an unmarked grave for lack of sufficient funds. A memorial marker for his resting place will be unveiled and dedicated at the Arbutus Memorial Park in Baltimore at 1 p.m. on Saturday, April the 4th. Yes, now Ben Taylor played over 30 years in professional baseball. When he left the game, he had a 334 lifetime average and was considered the best first baseman of his era. Early last year, while researching Taylor's life and career, Negro League historian Todd Bolton discovered that when he died in January of 1953, he was buried in an unmarked grave. Bolton and former Baltimore Elite Giants general manager Richard Powell, along with five Negro League veterans, spearheaded the successful effort to raise funds for an appropriate gravestone marker. And among the special guests confirmed to attend the ceremony are Baseball Hall of Famer Monty Irvin, Negro League veterans Leon Day, Wilmer Fields, Jim Cohen. Also in attendance will be Willie Owens, and I I heard that Buck Leonard may also be there. The only living veteran of, uh, by the way, Willie Owens is the only living veteran of the Eastern Cutter League who played with Ben Taylor in 1923 and 24. Now, you may have already noticed uh, 21st Century Radio has become a champion of the calls to recognize Negro League baseball players as the true American sports heroes that they all are. From our limited perception, we are very disturbed at the injustice of ignoring some truly great players simply because they were barred from playing the establishment's professional baseball. It's heartwarming to see honor and dignity given where it's due, even posthumously, as in the case of the Taylor grave marker. Now joining us this hour will be the person who got the ball rolling for Ben Taylor's memorial marker, baseball historian Todd Bolton, together with... Dick Clark, Dick co-chairperson Clark of the Negro Leagues Committee of Sabre. And uh, Dick's appeared on our program in the recent past. That's right. Now, both Todd and Dick have appeared before, and they were part of the team. Well, actually, Dick wasn't. Monty Irvin was. But Todd went with us to the White House to be recognized by President Bush last February 19th. And we'd like to thank Ed Schauder and Richard Berg of the NLBPA again for making that meeting with the president possible. Also online with us tonight is Willie Owens, the only person who is still alive today who played with Ben Taylor, which he did nearly 70 years ago. Willie will give us some personal history of Ben Taylor, the man. But before we even begin our discussion of Ben Taylor and his memorable accomplishments, I'd like to talk with Dick Clark and Todd Bolton about the continuing short-sightedness of the Hall of Fame Committee which has ignored the Negro League legends such as Leon Day, Turkey Stearns, Hilton Smith, Willie Wells, and and scores of others who deserve acceptance into Cooperstown's Hall of Hallowed Halls. Now, this was the fifth straight year, as we mentioned earlier, that no one from the Negro Leagues had been voted in. First, Dick, 
tell us uh, about, before we get into that, tell us about SABER, the uh, Society of American Baseball Research and the committee you co-chair with Larry Lester of the Negro Leagues Committee. You also have a newsletter, right? Are you there, uh, Dick? That, uh, that is right, Bob. Uh, can you hear me all right? Yes, we can you hear you fine. Well. Yeah. Okay, uh, could you tell us a little bit about SABER? Uh, yes, well... Uh, Sabre is an organization that uh, worldwide has about 6,000 members and that has different committees made up of historians and researchers that cover all different phases of baseball. And uh, Todd and I happen to be involved in the uh, Negro Leagues Committee, and we research and all the Negro League statistics and uh, gather interviews and and uh, about anything you can think of, we try to uh, keep the Negro Leagues in uh, front of the public so they don't forget about uh, the segregated past of baseball. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, Dick, uh, could you please review the voting procedure of the um, Hall of Fame? How close? Uh, well, we can't actually really can't get into that aspect of it concerning Leon Day. I heard it was very close once again this year. Uh, could is there? Um, is it a fair procedure that they have at this particular time? Well, uh, we certainly don't think it is a, a fair procedure. Uh, there's uh, really only, uh, well, there's three blacks on the committee. There's it's 18 people. There's three blacks that have seen the Negro Leaguers play, and then there's uh, 15 other veteran baseball players or writers and uh, not all of them have seen the Negro Leaguers play. And in order to uh, get selected, you need a three-fourth majority of the quorum that is there. Uh, in this uh, last uh, election, Or uh, they had 16 members there, so 12 votes was, is what was needed to be... Uh, Selected, and, then, and also the Negro Leaguers are placed with the officials and umpires and managers. You mean they're not considered players when they evaluate no, not, it? Uh, they had a change a year ago, which was one of those uh, uh, good news, bad news changes that uh, there used to be, you could select two uh people, the Veterans Committee could select two, but the Negro Leaguers were included with all the other players. Right. Mm-hmm. Then they separated it, so now uh, they can select two, one from the players group, major league players, and then as the Negro Leaguers are put with the officials, managers, and umpires. And how many do they select out of that Just group? Just one. Oh, well, that's really outrageous. Only one Tragic. person can be selected, and it sounds like it just sounds like the the stack uh, the cards are stacked against them. Well, it is it is it is uh, stacked against them. Uh, we have of course we have no animosity at whatsoever against the people that are selected. Like last year, uh, Bill Veck, and this year Bill McCowan. We don't have an argument with with that. It's just that it doesn't appear that the uh, Negro Leaguers get a fair. Uh, opportunity. Yeah. What is what's the total number, Dick, of people that get put into the Hall of Fame each year? 
excuse me? How many people get elected for the Hall of Fames a year? Well, it does vary, uh, but there hasn't been any uh, years where someone hasn't been selected either through the writers or the Veterans Committee for a long, long time. I can't even think of the last time uh, one person wasn't from either side. Can Go ahead, Bob. I understand that Roy Campanella was, uh, could not attend. Is that right? So he couldn't vote? Uh, I am not aware of that. So yeah. I know oh, I Roy, of course, is health is not the best, so it is very possible that he might not have uh, been able to attend, but I really don't know that. Oh, right. Uh, It's rather a secretive thing, so we just find out what uh, transpires through the news reports or something like that. Uh, Basically, uh, what the committee would like is for the Hall of Fame to reinstate the special Negro League Mm-hmm. That uh, was the organ that began the uh, selection process back in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And after just nine players were selected, then it was determined that there was no other qualified people, and they just they disbanded the committee. No other qualified people. My heavens. Well, that that was the uh, stated for uh, public consumption. That's just what That's was, right. uh, <laughs> what was stated. Uh, we obviously don't think oh. that is correct. Uh, they basically uh, selected an all-star team, and that's all. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then since that time, there's only been two Negro leaguers that have been voted in by the Veterans Committee, and that's probably in a oh, uh, 16-year period. Well, thank you very much for addressing this particular issue, Dick. Um, Dick's uh, pinch hitting, as we say, for Monty Irvin, who is going to be with us. Monty has lost his voice. He's, uh, he's speechless. <laughs> well, That's right. He has that, laryngitis. Yeah, he has, uh, I'm, the reason why I'm laughing about it, he has a good sense of humor, and uh, I was just joking around with Monty Irvin in spirit, right, dear? That's right. All right, let's get to Todd Bolton here. Well, those of you who watched 21st Century News on Fox 45's News at 10 last Friday have already met baseball historian Todd Bolton, and Todd's been accompanying us uh, over the past few weeks as we visited Mayor Schmoke and President Bush, etc., now, Todd, you weren't able to see yourself on TV, but you were terrific. And we've, we've copied the show for you, and, of course, we'll be sending it to you on Monday. But what is your reaction to the recent Cooperstown voting? Well, it's, it's another disappointment for me. Uh, we felt that uh, we had the momentum going in our favor this year with uh, all the things that uh, you and, and others have, have been doing for Leon Day and uh, I, I felt this was the best chance we had had in a long time, and uh, just uh, it was disappointing. And uh, I I agree with Dick wholeheartedly. Uh, it seems like the only way we'll uh, ever get any equity in this thing is if we uh, get the the old committee established again that can deal exclusively with Negro League veterans and have people on that committee that are knowledgeable of Negro League baseball. You know what's so interesting? We've spoken before with John Hallway and Jim Riley. These are historians, as you know, of, of the Negro League ball playing, as well as other 
pieces of information about baseball, and it seems that everybody who knows the business of baseball agrees that it is in an equitable process and certainly not fairly representative of the quality of the players in the Negro League. Yeah. So who knows what it'll take to uh, change it. But why don't we review, Todd, the, the real subject of tonight, which is your involvement with the Ben Taylor Memorial, which will be placed this April 4th at 1 p.m., the headstone, at the Arbutus Memorial Park at 1101 Sulphur Springs Road. Okay, well, we, we do think we have a nice uh, ceremony planned uh, this coming Saturday. Uh, I think we have about 16 Negro League veterans confirmed 16? now to attend oh. the ceremony. A number of those veterans uh, knew Ben personally. As you mentioned earlier, Willie Owens will be there, and he is the only uh, man living who actually played side-by-side -side with Ben. Uh, we're also going to have uh, Leon Day and Buck Leonard there who played under Ben. Of course, uh, you know, Buck was uh, uh, the greatest first baseman in the last uh uh, two decades of uh, Negro League baseball. Uh, ben had uh, held that role in the early years, and it, it was interesting that their careers uh, came together when, when Buck was just starting and Ben was his very first professional manager right there in Baltimore with a team called the Baltimore Stars in 1933. And that was a team was very short-lived. It ran into financial difficulty and didn't, didn't even last the season. But Ben and Buck uh, did cross paths there in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. um, we'll also have several other players who have uh, personal connections to Ben, uh, along with a slew of other baseball veterans. So it should be should be exciting. We're we're looking forward to it. Yeah, we certainly are. But we're looking forward to getting back, friends. We need to take a break. We went a little bit over. We apologize. We'll be right back in just a few minutes. All right, let's get back to Todd Bolton, and then we can get to Willie Owens, because it's, it's really important that we talk to Willie in just a few minutes. Todd, please review for us your involvement with the Ben Taylor Memorial, which will be placed this April the 4th at 1 p.m. at the Arbutus Memorial Park at 1101 Sulphur Springs Road. Well, I'd uh, been doing some research. Uh, of course, my, my two favorite uh, teams are the, the Black Sox and the Elites being... Uh, Maryland teams here, and I've begun to do some research on a lot of the old Black Sox players, and of course Ben was one of those, and uh, uh, I knew he had spent a lot of years in Baltimore, so I decided that uh, I'd try to seek out his grave, and I went through the microfilm of the Baltimore Afro-American and found his obituary, found a little article about it, the memorial service for him when he died, and decided I was going to scout out the grave, so I went to Arbutus Memorial Park and and I asked them uh, if he was buried there, and they looked him up, said, yes, he is, but uh, you won't be able to see anything because uh, he's in an unmarked grave. No no marker, no number, no nothing. And, uh, one of the old-timers who works in the graveyard there took me out and showed me the approximate spot. And uh, uh, the more I thought about it, it, it just really bothered me. Here was one of the all-time greats of black baseball. Uh, he, you know, without a doubt, it, it was the premier first baseman in the first quarter of the century, and uh, the man had uh, been a, a, a great citizen of Baltimore and had done a lot uh, in the community after his playing days were over, and here he was uh, buried 39 years ago in an, in an unmarked grave, and uh, it just disturbed me. So I talked to Dick Powell and uh, Leon and Monty, some of the others, and uh, told them of my concern, and, and uh, 
we decided we were going to do something about it. And about just about a year ago, we started our committee and uh, been very successful in raising funds. It's been all individual small contributions, uh, five, ten, fifteen, twenty dollar contributions, and uh, with the help of about 110 people, uh, we have raised the money to have a a bronze and granite memorial marker placed on his grave, and uh, so uh, I'm satisfied now. He's going to have a, a dignified and honorable uh, marker on his resting place, and that was the goal of our group. You know, Todd, it's interesting. This morning I spoke at the Montefiore Woodmore Hebrew Congregation, and at the opening of the morning breakfast, the rabbi commented that the highest form of mitzvah, which is doing good good deeds in Judaism, is actually to do a mitzvah, to do something for somebody who has since passed over and has no way of repaying you in any way for what you've done. So I'd like to tell you, from at least a, a Jewish perspective, this is the highest kind of deed you can do for another human being. But before we get to the personal side of Ben Taylor with Willie Owens, let's review some of Ben Taylor's statistics. Um, we'd like to open it up to you, and if, if Dick has anything to add, I, is Dick still there? Yes. Uh, fill us in on, on Ben's accomplishments. Well, well, Ben actually started out as a pitcher. He started his career in 1908 with his uh, brother C.I. Taylor, his older brother C.I. Taylor, and uh, uh, they, they groomed him to be a pitcher. He was a left-hander, and he uh, pitched intermittently off and on for about the first five or six years of his career. But uh, with his strong bat and his strong defensive skills, uh, he was eventually moved to first base. And uh, uh, within a very short period of time, he was a, a master of the position. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, he was a tremendous hitter. Uh, line drive power hitter and his numbers uh, in the early years uh, were always 300 plus and uh, he never had a an under 300 season until uh, 1923 the first year that, uh, that he was with the Potomacs and uh, interesting about Ben he was able to maintain this pace for many many years he uh, his last year as a player was 1929 and he was 41 years of age and even at age 41 uh, he ended up the season with a 322 batting average uh, 1921 the records that have been uh, the boxes that have been recovered from the 21 season showed that to be his best season at the plate he had 407 oh. so uh, he was uh, he was tremendous with the bat and as, as Willie will uh, tell you later on he was a just a graceful uh, defensive player and uh, made everything look good everything he did in the field he he looked good with so he was uh, just a top-notch ball player and he had the ability to pass a lot of those skills down to uh, to players in later years when he was a coach and a manager and then uh, was was a highly respected man too I've uh, in the past year I've really intensified my efforts to to research his life and career and one of the the things you hear all the time from those who knew him is he was just a true gentleman, a first-class fellow, uh, respected by all who knew him. I mean, these are the kind of things you hear from the ball players. So, uh, really outstanding human being as well as an excellent, excellent ball player. You know, one of the things I found interesting because you don't often see this, particularly when you consider the years in which this man played, but he came from an illustrious baseball family. 
His brother Charles, or C.I. Taylor, was the manager of the Indianapolis ABCs, and his other brother, Candy Jim, I believe, That's correct. was a third baseman who went on to become vice chairman, as I remember, from the Negro National League. And they still had another brother, it's right? Steel Arm Johnny. Right, Steel oh, Arm Johnny. Steel Arm Johnny. But they yeah. say that Ben was by far the family's best, but that's, that's a remarkable demonstration of what I call genetic tracking. Right. Meaning, you know, when souls pick their place of incarnation, they do it for good reason. Well, he must have really wanted to play ball. Yeah, I guess they, so. All four of them did have an opportunity to, to be together one year, 19, uh, uh, 1914, the first year that CI took over the Indianapolis ABCs. Uh, all four of the Taylor brothers were on that team in 1914. So that was the... That was the only year as professionals that they were all four together. Well, they must have in school, you know, been envied by all. You put the four brothers together, you probably couldn't beat them. Hey, you got almost half a team there. You can go around Enough playing Enough to everybody. play. Hey, listen, right. we, we used to, to play, play with two. That's right. <laughs> you throw the ball, you hit it, and somebody you have to divvy up who's going to run for it. Okay, now before we run on the time, we want to get to Willie Owens, but Dick, did, uh, Dick Clark at uh, Sabre... Etc. Did you have anything else you wanted to add uh, on Ben Taylor? Well, uh, just one point is Todd knows uh, Ben better than anyone, and I, I would just like to, um, you know, mention the fact that uh, in just about every poll that's ever been conducted, uh, Ben Taylor is either first or second among first basemen of Negro leaguers, and. Uh, Obviously, with the underrepresentation of Negro leaguers in the Hall of Fame, if it's ever ever rectified, then Ben Taylor would become a member of the Hall of Fame because of his greatness. Mm-hmm. Now, we hope we can somehow affect a change in the years to come on that, Dick. This is absolutely a miserable situation concerning that, as far as uh, as we're concerned, anyway. And and you know, I'm not saying I know very much about this particular area, but I can I can spot injustice when when uh, I see it. All right, now, friends, as noted earlier, the only player still alive who played with Ben Taylor is our guest now, Willie Owens. He's been very patiently waiting on there. You there, Willie? Yeah. All right, Willie, according to Robert Peterson's highly respectable work, Only the Ball Was White, originally published by McGraw-Hill in 84, and now reissued just this past month by Oxford University Press, Hey, baseball's gone to Oxford now, friends. Willie, or William Owens, played from 1923 to 1933. His positions were shortstop, second base, and pitcher. He played on the Washington Potomacs, Chicago American Giants, or Giants, as they say in Balmer, Indianapolis ABCs, Dayton Marcos, Birmingham Black Barons, Memphis Red Sox, and the Detroit Stars. Welcome to 21st Century Radio's Hieronymus and Company, where knowledge comes first, Willie. Was that information about you via Bob Peterson accurate? Pretty much. Pretty much? Yeah. Okay. Now, on what team or teams did uh, you and Ben Taylor play together? Uh, with the Washington Potomacs. The Washington Potomacs? In 1923 and 24. 1923 and 24. What position were you playing then? Shortstop. You were shortstop and he was first base? I didn't hear you. You were were shortstop and he was first base. That's right. All right. Would you share with our listeners some of your favorite personal experiences with Ben Taylor? Oh, 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 he was just the whole entire uh, 
of active in uh, community affairs. In other words, at one time he was head he was head of a a basketball team in the winter time. Mm-hmm. But he was just an outstanding man. Everybody had they respected him highly. Uh, outside of baseball, do you have any recollections of how he handled his day-to-day affairs, Wilmer? Uh, not Wilmer. <laughs> Willie, I'm sorry. Uh, well, uh, from CI, CI was the fellow that made all of the ball players wear a, co- uh, wear a collar and tie. That was oh. Ben's brother Charles, right? Uh-huh. Are you talking about Ben's brother no, Charles? CI. CI is was the oldest one. Oh, I oh. see. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, Ben uh, took his uh, his uh, way of uh, of uh, doing from uh, from his brother. So he always wore a coat and tie off the field. Yeah. Yeah. They had to. Mm. Huh. Mm. Well, there, hey, I was I was looking through one of the books a long time ago. Right. Didn't they at one time even wear a tie? Let me ask Dick Clark that. Dick, are you there? Yes. Did baseball players ever wear a tie on the field back in the 1800s? I thought uh, I saw that. Uh, yes, they did, actually. Yeah. Uh, in the real early days, uh, 1870s, yeah. that they uh, did wear ties. Yeah, that's when I used to play. I used to wear my tie there. <laughs> that was your time. last life, darling. <laughs> you shouldn't right. get so confused. Oh, okay. <laughs> Willie, what do you think was Ben Taylor's most outstanding contribution to baseball? Well, I would want to, I would say that uh, he carried himself in such a gentleman-like way that uh, he was a great uh, asset to the colored uh, players. Mm-hmm. And of course, as people know, he wasn't just a player, he, he was a manager as well. Yeah. Then he was a, a fellow that always tried to encourage you very much. He never was a fellow that to ball you out. Never know him ball anyone out the two years that I was with him. And of course, I, you know, I used to follow him Mm-hmm. Way before before I even started playing ball, when uh, I would say way about 1916, 17, uh, I used to, me and my brother, we used to go to the ball game uh, every Sunday, and we'd watch the ABCs play. Never dreamed that I would even be playing uh, later on with Ben. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, that is terrific. Yeah, work. and as people may know, as owner or manager of the Baltimore Stars, Ben is credited, of course, with helping mold the career of Hall of Fame first baseman Buck Leonard. And Buck often said of Ben that he was one of the greatest first basemen ever. Boy. Yeah, never raised his voice no time. Boy, I tell you, that Zoe knows her baseball, huh? I've learned a lot. All right, okay, well, friends, it's time out on the playing field. That's right, it's time out on the playing field. And we'll be back with uh, Willie Owens, and we'll talk a little more with Dick Clark and Todd Bolton when we come back. We'll get our pitching arms warmed up here, and John Wolf is about ready to knock one out of the park here. Get ready there, John. I think John used to bat 425 in the old days. We'll be back. Keep dreaming. <laughs> Dreams are healthy. Yeah. 
And my thanks to Larry Lockern of Baltimore, who sent me an original copy of a newspaper of January 18, 1930, which had a photo of my most favorite player in the whole world, Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth was bowling. I think... I think I could do as well as Babe Ruth in bowling, sweetheart. Well, we'll have to check that out. We don't know what his score was. Oh, so thank you, Larry. Now, the business of creating collectibles and memorabilia from the Negro League has experienced a strong upsurge in the past few years. Whereas uh, just a few years ago, it was almost impossible to find evidence of their existence, it is now possible to find reproductions of the original hats, jerseys, pennants and posters and trading cards and a lot more and I hope they all succeed a hundredfold because it helps raise our nation's consciousness to the heroes of the era of baseball apartheid. Now we at 21st Century Radio are not collectors although many people mistakenly assume we are. As a matter of fact we purchase ourselves much of the material that is given away to our listeners on these shows to ensure their availability to our listeners. And most of our prizes, however, are donated to you by our guests. And one exceedingly generous source of our prizes is on the line with us this hour. As a matter of fact, we awarded two of his promo sets on the Negro League's Legends last hour, and we'll do that again this hour. These promo sets are valued at over $100 apiece, and that's obviously some prize. The originator of these sets is Robert David Retort, who appeared on our national show some weeks back to talk about his series, one of the Negro Legends limited edition postcard set containing 100 cards. This set has received some nice compliments from such baseball historians as Dick Clark, chairperson of the Negro Leagues Committee, and Larry Lester of the Society for American Baseball Research, or Sabre, both of whom have been on this program before. As a matter of fact, Dick Clark was just with us That's a few right. minutes ago. Right? Now, in their February 1992 Negro League newsletter, they said, quote, I found the following excellent. The R.D. Retort Negro League's Legends postcard set is terrific. Many new images I haven't seen. I'm still awaiting publication of the Negro League pictorial book, end quote. Well, that's high praise indeed by one of America's most important baseball researchers. And just wait till he sees that book. Now, he certainly won't be disappointed. 21st Century Radio and the rest of the collector's world have also been awaiting this publication, Pictorial Negro League Legends, which will be finished within the next 10 days. But we already know what it looks like because we just received an unbound copy hot off the presses. Well, it's not a not a complete copy, but from what we have in hand, it's easy to judge that it will be an excellent addition to Negro League's history. Our guest this hour is Bob David Retort, the man responsible for producing both the Negro League Legends postcard set and the soon-to-be-released pictorial album. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio's Hieronymus and Company, where knowledge comes first, Bob. Hello, Bob. Hello, Zoa. Okay, uh, when did you become interested in the Negro League players and their great but largely unheralded history, Bob? Well, it started a few years back with the pure interest sake of uh, the lack of knowledge in the field and picking up certain publications by a Mr. John Holloway, who's wrote extensively on the Negro Leagues, and, and Robert Peterson, who has a book out called Only the Ball Was White, and other various card sets around. It spurred my interest to 
uh, go and do further investigation on the Negro Leagues. What? Go ahead. And on the advent of uh, reading those popular items, I decided to uh, take a different uh, alternative and do uh, actual photos and actual interviews and things like that, much like they did, but more in, in more an extensive form. When did you actually decide to put together the set of cards and the accompanying pictorial album? Well, that came as an autograph collector myself in baseball memorabilia, not only in the white major leagues. Uh, it gave me the idea of how valuable those uh, autograph cards would be once they are autographed by the black players and all the uh, players I contacted were more than willing to uh, donate their pictures to get them copied for the card set and then one thing led to another and it produced a set in which uh, all the uh, collectors across the country would be very much interested in getting autographed by the players. Uh, did you have any difficulty in uh, uh, putting together this material on set one? Uh, the set took approximately, the book and the set together took approximately four years to gather enough knowledge in order to put the material together. And up until the past year and a half, it was basically obtaining and putting together the knowledge and obtaining all the photos directly from the players and various historical institutions like the uh, National Baseball Library and the Kansas City Historical Society in Topeka, Kansas, and private collections like from Phil S. Dixon, getting the photos together, sending them out to the players, getting them identified, and then writing commentaries on them and putting them into a set and so forth. Now, Bob, before we get to the pictorial album, would you go over a little bit about the unique attributes of your limited edition postcard set to begin with? A limited edition is obviously limited. How limited is it? The Negro League Legends, uh, Negro League Legends postcard set is limited edition to 10,000 units. In each unit, you get 100 postcard size vintage-type photographs in each set in a commemorative leather-type gold-embossed case. Boy, what a case. Yeah, we're going to take, talk about that a little later on. Uh, it's so nice. Uh, I put all my cards in uh, pages, plastic pages, so I can look at them. Right, that's a very popular format to do, too, especially after they're autographed. Mm -hmm. And if you're sitting around a coffee table with other people, it's nice to... Uh, have them in a format of that nature so you can browse them, eat them, uh, you know, read them easier. Mm -hmm. Why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the highlights of the players in the set? Some of the uh, real popular players in the set, of course, you've had them on your show, is Gene Benson, who's one of the star figures in the, in the Philadelphia area, along with Stanley Glenn and Malin Duck, who are also featured in the set, and Wilmer Harris and Larry Kimbrough, all of which you play with the Philadelphia Stars. And some of the other players you had on, on your show, like Leon Day, who was uh, uh, very close to the Hall of Fame induction this year, is in the card set, and he was on your show. And Monty Urban's in the card set, who was previously on your show, and he's uh, in the Hall of Fame. And he later on went from the Newark Eagles to uh, play with the uh, Newark Giants. Mm -hmm. and the other stars, like Buck Leonard's in the set, and he's still living. Very nice uh, player to play with the Homestead Grays. And we even have players in there such as uh, Harold Hooks Tinker, who was very instrumental in the founding of Josh Gibson back in the uh, mid-1920s. Mm. Players such as that. Well, when some, some of the cards that I particularly like, which you don't find in uh, most, if, I, I, I haven't seen all the sets. I've never seen the 1974 Lachlan or the 78 Lachlan set. Maybe my dates are a little bit oh. wrong there, Bob, but I haven't seen those, so I don't know what they look like. I, I think they're probably drawings. Is that right? 
Right, I think they're sketch drawings, if, uh, yeah. if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, so, but most of them, seldom, show the players' teams, the whole teams. Yeah, on the request of uh, collectors throughout the country, when I was starting to put together the set, and of course even the players themselves, uh, people would make reference to team photos. And a lot of your early sets, like uh, going back to white baseball, like in your top sets, in your early archival sets, I uh, would throw a certain amount of team photographs in. I thought, and I've always enjoyed those, especially when they were marked properly, and they were just a neat thing to collect. Mm -hmm. So in the advent of taking recommendations through other collectors and looking at that and appreciating something like that, I decided to add a number of uh, unique team photos to the set, too. And also, they're very instrumental in uh, you know, getting those autographed by two or more players who are still living on the teams. Mm-hmm. Well, did you have you heard or read that quote from Dick Clark before? Yes, I thought that was very nice of him. Yeah, I'll but, say. Well, you know, Dick is certainly top-notch. No two ways about it. He knows his stuff. Oh, he's one of the finest historians in the country on Negro League history. Well, one of the about that. and one of the things he said about your set was that there were some images he had never seen before. Maybe you can share with our listeners what that is. Yeah, in the way of the vintage photographs that I've used. Uh, by contacting the players directly, I was very fortunate enough to get into their uh, photograph albums and have them send me photographs that basically were unobtainable by other historians throughout the country. And just out of the sheer co contacting the players and having them uh, send me photos, I would select the best, the ones that I thought were the best that were unpublished. And in that view, they come to light then. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was very instrumental in you know uh, my fellow colleagues learning from things that I picked up from the players, too, like that, that were unpublished, formerly unpublished. One of the things I failed to ask Jim Riley and, and some of the others that we've spoken with is whether or not anybody's gone around and done a complete oral history with the players that are still alive. Yes, that was uh, back in the 70s when uh, Robert Peterson was doing his book and, of course, the uh, nice books from uh, John Holloway. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a very good format to use. And uh, a lot of the players, even associated with the Sabre Committee and Dick Clark, they've done uh, not only oral interviews but written interviews. And mm -hmm. uh, the gentleman, uh, the historian Phil S. Dixon out in Kansas City, he's done extensive oral and written interviews to the players. And, and uh, that's my next segment now, uh, do is doing oral interviews. That was what I was going to ask you, whether or not somebody's put it in a, in a sort of package form that somebody can purchase so that you can actually listen to taped interviews rather than always having to read books. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Well, exactly. Stephen Banker did that. Did he? 78, 1978. Mm -hmm. uh, I've not heard that. Well, yeah, the series. That's the Black Diamonds uh, That's right, series. correct. Mm -hmm. The sets that I, that I listened to ad infinitum. Oh, ad infinitum, that's yeah. what those are. <laughs> he does, morning, day, and night. Yeah, well, that's you know. That's how we've learned. Uh, <laughs> you know, when uh, friends, look, I, I don't pretend to know very much about this particular area. My feeling about this work, that is, the, the Negro Leagues, uh, is that great injustice has been done um, for many, many decades. And something really had to be done about it. And when I talked to other members in the media, I received some truly puzzling answers. Uh, one of the things I heard consistently was, Bob, these guys were playing in small ballparks, and that's the reason why they hit so many home runs. Bob... Uh, they didn't have good pitching, so the batters were knocking it all over the place. I mean, 
Then I started reading, which obviously the people who told me these things didn't do any reading or any research in, and I found out that the folks that told me this, now these are guys that knew a lot about baseball. Or were in baseball professionally. In baseball professionally. We're dead wrong. Is that right, Bob? Yes, I agree with you, Robert. That, that's correct. And as you pick up on the, as you say, the oral histories and read extensively on the parallel readings, you'll find that what you're saying is uh, very true, corresponding that they were, uh, the parks were not small. They were uh, legitimate, legalized, legal-type parks is what you would say, with the right parameters. And uh, their catchers and their pitchers and the batters were on equal par with the white major league players, and that can be quite readily seen throughout the barnstorming days with Dizzy Dean and Bob Feller's All-Stars, in which uh, the uh, black All-Stars would tour with these players and do very well, if not exceed the white major league players in a lot of instances. Well, that's the reason why, uh, uh, was it Landis? Was it Landis? That's right, Judge yes. Landis. That's the reason why he forbid, after a certain period of time, uh, the barnstorming, because literally, friends, these teams were beating the pants off the best that the white teams had to offer, and they weren't even using their best, uh, they, they really weren't using their all of the best players. Right, and they were also collecting more money and drawing bigger crowds. Mm-hmm, that's right. Which was interesting. <laughs> yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, we are going to take a break here, and uh, we do have a listener, Larry. Larry, I mentioned a little earlier how much I really liked the Babe Ruth picture that you sent. Uh, it was really very kind of you. Babe Ruth bowling. How do you like that, Robert? Babe Ruth bowling. I think that's maybe the only thing I could beat Babe Ruth in. That's amazing. <laughs> I don't know about that, Bob. How do you claim that? Well, because he's not around. That's, <laughs> that's one way I got to the win microphone. That's by what... somebody that doesn't have a body anymore. That's right. That's right. <laughs> You're sure that's to right. win. I'll, listen, I'll challenge Babe Ruth to bowling anytime. I wouldn't I say that. Well, you know the Babe. He may come down in that bowling alley the night you play. Well, no, no surprise to me. I'll tell you that. Well, friends, we need to pay for this show so that we can stay here on the air, okay? All right, see you in just a few minutes. I had a lot of other questions concerning the, the set number one card, but I want to move on to the Pictoria book, and we do have a caller who has been so kind to me that I want to get him on, on the air as soon as possible. First, let's go to Larry in Essex. Go uh, right ahead, Larry. You, you there, Larry? Yeah, good evening. How are you? Larry, again, I want to thank you very much for sending that photograph, uh, that actually the newspaper article on Babe Ruth bowling. And my wife has threatened me a couple of times not to say that I could probably beat him bowling. Well, it's certainly not fair. Yeah, well... No, it would be a little... And I doubt you could. Knowing it, that this is a man who has worked with a ball his whole life, I suspect that he probably does roll a ball a little better than you, dear. Yeah, but he... I but have with a, practice. I have a physical body, and he doesn't. <laughs> well, that gives you an advantage. Okay, Larry, you had an important question. Yeah, well, I'm glad. I hope you enjoyed that. I, really I loved it. Okay. I really did. Um, I wonder, are there any books out that uh, one could read... I think I read one years ago. Uh, did Satchel Page have a book or write one or someone wrote about him that I remember a long time ago? Bob, uh, uh, what what books would you recommend? Yes, there, there was a book out in in the 50s by uh, an author by the name of Saul White who was also uh, wrote a book on Satchel Page and, and, Negro, and Negro League All-Stars and famous players. But that book, book, of course, has long since been out of print and is very much a collectible item. Uh, the most current books out on the market, who, which, are, which are absolutely magnificent, of course, is, is uh, Robert Peterson's book, uh, 
and it's called Only the Ball Was White. That was published in the early 70s and is still available in paperback. Yeah, Oxford and, University has a new edition that just came out in 92. Correct. And you have also the grouping of uh, John Holloway's books by uh, Melcher, I think it was called Melcher Books. Meckler. Meckler, that's it. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are an excellent source of uh, reading material. And I think now he has his most current release is uh, uh, Josh, a Josh Gibson book and a Satchel Page book uh, combined mm -hmm. in one book, you know, both players. So it's, it should be very good reading. I do have it, and it is excellent. Yeah, it's a great book. As a matter of fact, John Holloway was with us first hour so many years ago. Uh, actually, tonight he was with us, and that's the book we reviewed. Uh, right, he's a very accomplished author. All right, I have a, a question for Larry, and uh, the prize will be a Josh and Satch book by John B. Holloway. Larry, you ready for the question? Uh, yeah, I hope. All right, Larry, where do you live? Uh, in Essex. You win the prize! All right. <laughs> 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 All right, you win a prize. This is what we'll give you. We'll give you that Josh and Satch book from courtesy of Meckler Publishers, and uh, we'll give you uh, uh, one of these beautiful proof sets uh, that Bob David Retort uh, published, and we'll give also a punch in the nose. How about well, that? How about the right to uh, direct traffic on opening day? Yeah, you, no, I don't <laughs> need that. Thank you. It's called uh, Dodge. Yeah, I appreciate that very much. I really do. All right, but so you much. just you just make sure that my executive producer has your address and uh, number there, so we can get it off to you. Okay. Yeah, and a real good show tonight. I was. I'm really interested. Really, really Thank you. Good listening. Well, you're very welcome. God bless that man. All right. Now, let's get back. Can we back. move to the pictorial book? I'm dying, but first, let me, let me ask this question concerning the, the box sets number one. Uh, what's the cost of set number one? The retail cost of the set is $85, and that includes, the, of course, the almost 300-page pictorial book and the 100-card postcard set Wonderful. in the presentation box. That's incredible. And uh, you, you're doing a set number two? Yes, I'm currently working on set number two and a supplement set to set one, and those will be available midsummer. Oh, boy. I can't wait to see them. Maybe we'll trade sets. You know, Dr. Bob is working on a UFO card set. No, no, no one's supposed to Sounds know. Oh, don't tell. I no. love that. Yeah, we're doing a, it's true. Well, she let the cat out of the bag. You're the first person to know it. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> this, else knows. This was top oh, secret in the, in the industry, and uh, my wife sometimes... I didn't know Spills that. Spills the beans. <laughs> Nobody yeah, told it's me. It's a 110-card <laughs> set, which will be published by Eclipse out there in California, and it's on UFOs. And we cover the history of UFOs, showing you photographs. I mean, it's going to be truly remarkable. I'm really going to like that. Well, we'll get you a set. I I'll bet autograph. the aliens play some sort of game. Oh, there's no such thing as aliens, of course. It's called Let's Dodge Governments. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Now, let's, we're going to move on to the pictorial book, because it does differ from the postcard set, at least from what we've seen, in that all the photographs are of the various teams. Are we correct in assuming that this pic pictorial book also contains some of the images found in the card set? Correct. The book parallels the uh, card sets. All the cards featured in set one, two, will be fe are featured in the book. So actually, when you buy uh, the well, pictorial book comes with card set one, you'll get an inside information on what card set two will look like, too, by the many photos. Can you describe a little bit for our listeners who aren't going to get one of these wonderful books, the uh, size of the book and how many pages and photographs are in it? 
the uh, book is a pro- the book size is eight and a half by eleven, and it is a softbound edition with an ancient parchment text cover. Oh, that's nice. And, uh, what you get is a glossy enameled uh, sepia tone photos, and everything's done in brown ink. And it's approximately three hundred pages with a little over two hundred and sixty photographs. And the book comprises uh, all the living Negro League legends. Of course, uh, since the book has been published, a few of the players have passed away, like George Giles have passed away and left the Allen Bryant. And it also features all the current Hall of Fame players that are in Cooperstown now. And uh, we started a lot of the teams back around the turn of the century and included uh, a full run, say, the Kansas City Monarchs, of which is over approximately around 20 photos just of that team and other teams in chronological events, and uh, all the way up until the uh, Negro League dissipated in the 1950s. Well, how's the book organized? For example, the team photos of the Baltimore Elite Giants. So are they in consecutive order? Right, exactly. Right. Uh, when you open a book, you'll get uh, an eventful pictures of approximately 200 players at the front of the book. Mm-hmm. all with small bios and their uh, photos from their personal collections. Then you'll go into the group players, and that's uh, uh, players consistent of two or three or more players in a group, and they're dated accordingly. Then you go into the uh, team photos, and they're all grouped in sections. Like if you have the Baltimore Eli Giants, it would start with the earliest found photo that I have of them and go all the way up till uh, the last date, say, uh, if it was, if I have the early photo in 1925, mm-hmm. I could have a 1928 photo or 1930 all the way up to 1940s. Mm-hmm. And are chronologically uh, placed in there. So you can follow the players throughout their career because a lot of the players have jumped around in the teams. They sure did, and, didn't they? And that's very important. And one very, very important uh, thing of the book is all the photos have been identified by the players themselves. So uh, anything that's been written under the photo are completely capsulized by the players uh, and all the players all the players on that team were identified by a living player on that team so well, that's, that's remarkable bob that's remarkable good research because boy you need some real good research that's that's a hundred percent there or else you just duplicate errors yeah exactly so when you have a pictorial and you have the parallel readings like the holloway books and the peterson books and uh, that sort of thing. You get a full picture then of the uh, Negro League perspective in, in black baseball, mm-hmm. and that's very important because if you're reading something in John Holloway's books or the, uh, Robert Peterson's book and it mentions about certain players, now you can trace these players through the teams they played. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you pick up the pictorial and you can see that, and that's very important. Well, friends, uh, we do have a winner, so you can stop calling. People were beating down the walls here. And everyone just can't be a winner, guys. We're, we got one more big prize coming up. We really do. And that's going to be somewhere about 20 minutes of the hour. And along with that prize, we are going to uh, be giving away an actual poster, a recreation of a poster uh, um, by Greenfield Showprint. And Prentice Mills, do you, are you familiar with those posters? Oh, huh? they're fabulous. I have quite a few in my own personal collection. And uh, I find them very, very nice to send out to the individual players and uh, to take them to card shows where the Negro League players are and to get them autographed. Mm. Then I get them framed, and they're excellent. Yeah, they are. And uh, we're going to have Prentice on for a few minutes uh, 
in just a, well, in just a few minutes to especially give away that particular uh, poster along with one of your books and along with one of the, your uh, uh, promo sets, etc. Boy, I'm telling you, we have not been able to give away the quality of prizes like this for a long time. Uh, because these things are indeed expensive, and if, and if Bob wasn't so generous, we couldn't do it. Let's face it, we just couldn't do it. Uh, Thank you, Bob. Uh, well, you know, it's the truth. Uh, I was out of here for a minute. Did you all talk about the House of David team yet? Oh, no, we haven't. Oh, good, oh. I want to talk about okay, that. Okay, you go ahead, dear. All right. Well, one of the, Bob showed me this most incredible picture of the 1938 House of David team and the 1929 Black Sox. Firstly, how did you decide which photos to include and reject? Well, interesting to note that um, when you're looking at the House of David team, there was a White House of David team and there was a Black House of David team. I've only seen the picture of the White House of David okay, team. These are all people with long hair and long beards, and they look like hippies. Right, exactly. Right? It was a very religious uh, oriented type of team. Well, now, wait a second. That's they were very good players. We asked somebody that. We asked, was the House of David all Jewish players? And other ball players said no. And so I asked, well, why did they grow their hair then? And they said, just to be different. So no, what, what is the truth? I mean, were they really, were they Jewish? No, I think, I think it was the religious sect that they belonged to at the time. I think uh, it was a, a, a nostalgia flavor type orientated towards that. And that's what they believed in. And it also drew very much attention to the team. And by the way, they were excellent players. Yeah, they were. As a, as a matter of fact, Babe Ruth actually played uh, with them once. Oh, yeah, he barnstormed with the House of David. Mm. And a lot of the uh, uh, Negro League uh, all-star players barnstormed with the House of David. And, and uh, there was, you know, they, they were so popular, they actually created a Black House of David, which uh, I have a feature photo of the White House, That's Black great. House of David in, my, in the pictorial. Did the uh, Black House of David men also grow their hair? Uh, no, they did not. I thought maybe it was the beginning of the Rastas in America. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> no, the uh, Black House of David was a, an accumulation of a lot of fine players from other Negro League teams. Mm -hmm. I see. Well, I'd like to get the Prentice Mills for a few minutes here. It will give away a prize and get back to that incredible pictorial album, which we're holding up to the microphone at this very minute. And all you guys that are psychic, you'll have no problem taking a look at this one. Just take a look at it. And while we're doing that, friends, one of the most common methods used to publicize the Negro League games was plastering posters all over town. And some months back, it came to our attention that Greenfield show prints uh, down there in Nashville, Tennessee, had reproduced a series of these posters, and joining us at this very second, right now, is president of the company. He's the president of <laughs> a company. He, bought, he liked it so much he bought the company. Prentice Mills. Hello, Prentice. You there? Yes, I'm here, Bob. How are you? Oh, we're just doing fine. Please tell us, where and, ha and how did you uh, locate the original posters? Well, the posters come to us from a number of sources. Uh, we are in the show print business, and for those who don't understand what show printers are, we're the people who make posters that advertise shows. Uh -huh. It's sort of a specialty area of printing, and there aren't that many people in the country over the years who've done that. But Nashville, being a music town, has uh, always supported the show print business here mm -hmm. for very many years. And a few of the old show print houses in this part of the country uh, still had original plates, uh, we found. They rarely threw anything away, it seems. A lot of posters, originals from players themselves who uh, contributed them to us for the purpose of having them recreated. 
and we just find them in really unusual places. Mm-hmm. Well, what's available on the posters you've reproduced so far? We have about 30 posters currently available. Uh, they range from uh, barnstorming games between Satchel Page and Dizzy Dean mm-hmm. to regular na- Negro National League games, many of which, most of which, were played here in Nashville at the old Sulphur Dell ballpark. Mm-hmm. What, what are the costs involved? They range from $20 to $35, depending upon uh, really how difficult they are to print. Our mm-hmm. posters are hand-printed. Hmm. And so they're printed in very small quantities, as right. you can imagine. Well, how can they be ordered, Prentice? How can they be yours? Ordered, yeah. How can our friends out there that are listening right now be in ordered? In Radioland. Well, all they have to do in Radioland is call us for a catalog, or if they just want to call up, call us up and talk to us, we'll be happy to talk all they want to. Yep. That's right. And then, Prentice is willing to take your calls to talk right. about anything. Yeah, you anything. Said. Give them a call. Ask them how the Colts are doing. They're not doing so well uh, <laughs> at this time. Now we're going to be giving away one of these beauties in just uh, a few minutes uh, after we take our break, and uh, you guys can go out there and fight for it because we have an important question to ask. And uh, Mike and Talson has an important uh, thing to add to our show, and we'll get him. We'll allow, we'll allow Mike. Yeah, won't we? We'll give him the mic. And just when we uh, come back. Yeah, when we come back. Let's take our break now, get a haircut, get a shoe shine. I got a haircut, you got a haircut. Yeah, and we'll do a little more warming up in the bullpen. All right. All right, we're going to go to Mike and Towson, who's been waiting patiently. Hi, Mike. Hi. Before I talk about the office, are you a real doctor or a psychology or what? uh... I'm a Ph.D. in the area of the humanistic sciences. Uh, My doctoral thesis dealt with... uh, the interpretation of the great seal of the United States. And, uh, I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, you know, Pittsburgh Pirates, and uh, mm-hmm. you saw all the white players, Paul Wainer and Pie Trainer and mm-hmm. all the old guys mm-hmm. that I know Rex Barney knows. But in Pittsburgh, I don't know what you called it here in Baltimore, we called it Sandlot Baseball. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I saw the Homestead Grays. The Homestead is a borough in the city of Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. separate from the city of Pittsburgh, which most of the communities are. You have different Braddock, Pennsylvania, Homestead, Pennsylvania. And uh, the Homestead Grays used to come up into the Mount Oliver, which was another borough of Pittsburgh. And I used to see them play at the Warrington Field. I saw Campanella. I only saw Satchel Page pitch one time. How'd he do? Uh, don't remember getting too old, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did Roy but, Campanella uh, do? Uh, he was, to me, he was, I, was, I have to remember, I was a young man myself at the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I think he did all right. And, uh. Here's, here's something to stump your audience with. Uh, you notice all the attacks on the names, the names of the baseball teams, like the Braves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and right. So yeah. forth. And the Indians, right? You know, they're never attacking the Indians. You know why? Why? The Indians was the first team to have an Indian play on the team. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, that I didn't is know interesting. That. Yep. 
Jim Thorpe. When oh, you yes. when you used to watch the games, Jim Thorpe played for the Canton Bulldogs, and he played a few seasons with the Indians for maybe five bucks a game, hmm. and he lost all his medals, which I believe mm-hmm. were yeah. finally restored to him. I'm not sure of that. Well, Mike, one question, and then we're going to have to go. When you used to go and see these games, and you were a young man, did it occur to you that it was a little strange that the Negro League players were only playing amongst themselves? No, not really, because you have to understand, Pittsburgh was an integrated city. I mean, uh, we didn't have what you guys had down here. I went to school with blacks. No, no, that's what I'm saying, though, that they weren't allowed to play with the white players. That's what I'm asking. Wasn't that strange? In high school, they were. Uh Uh-huh. In high school, we... uh, uh, my my wife went to high school with uh, with a mixture of black kids. The area where we lived had some black families. Well, Mike, we're going to have to uh, go. In fact, a black kid was my assistant uh, Boy Scout leader. They could sit at the same counter with us, too, by the way, in Pittsburgh. Well, thankfully, days. some people were humane and sane. Yeah. yeah. yeah let's you see. have a good night, Mike. All right. Now, I want to get back to this pictorial book. Which is a real, from what I have seen, it's truly outstanding. And as we uh, mentioned earlier, Dick Clark is just going to love it when he gets his copy. Now, this book not only contains the Negro League teams of America, but various teams of, and this is the first time I've seen this, the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Mexico, etc. Truly outstanding. Now, where did you come by some of those beauties? A lot of the uh, team photos and elements of the group photos were. Uh, again, taken directly from the players. Uh, one player who was very instrumental in uh, sending me some very fine uh, photos from the from the Puerto Rico area was uh, Bob Thurman, who played with the uh, Homestead Grands and Kansas City Monarchs, and later went on to uh, minor league play too. And he was just recently voted into the Puerto Rican Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And those Puerto Rican photos come directly from his private collection. And, of course, some of the other photos, again, again, come from the National Baseball Library in Cooperstown, New York. All right. Now, what's the cost of the pictorial book? We touched on this a little earlier, but I think we want to remind our listeners out there. The retail cost currently on the pictorial book is $30. And at this time, I'm offering a 10% discount, which is uh, comes down to $27. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, postage with that, too. When will that be available? That'll be available within approximately 10 days. It's it's on the it's currently off the press now it's getting bound mm, and uh, mm, that's that'll take all next week to get all those thousands of copies done and then they'll be shipped out to all the people across the united states that ordered them in bookstores and and uh, of course to your uh program and all the other people well we're really very excited about that now in your opinion which of the negro league teams were among the very best it's a toss-up with me. I, 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 because I live in the Pittsburgh area, I favor the, uh, of course, the uh, Pittsburgh Crawfords at Homestead Grays. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I, uh, the players were magnificent. And then I sort of like, you know, flutter on down to Philadelphia and go with the Philadelphia Stars and, and back up to Newark and Uri with the Newark Eagles. And uh, I have a lot of favorites. Mm-hmm. It's it's tough to it's tough to pick out something I really like, you know, because it's just all so interesting and all so great. And again, you had the element of the players traveling between the teams, which was uh, very which was very interesting and and uh, good. Well, you'd be glad to know that uh, who was it with us 
last last hour. That's right. They suggested that the best teams were also the Pittsburgh Crawfords, Hilldales, and the Grays. All right. As a matter of fact, we wanted to get your opinions on a a number of uh, things, such as greatest pitchers, sluggers, fielders, base runners, greatest teams. uh, Well, we already covered that. uh, Managers, etc. So you ready? You ready for the quiz? Quiz time. Let's see if you come up with some of the others. All right. (laughs) Best pitcher. Who do you think was the best pitcher in the Negro Leagues? Uh, I would, uh, of course, have to go with popular opinion and go with Satchel Page and uh, Leon Day. Well, you know what these other guys said? Smokey Joe Williams. Oh, of course, yes. If you're, if you're going towards the uh, early period, of course, Smokey Joe Williams, yes. Yeah, and that is important to remember, friends. There were different periods of the Negro Baseball Leagues. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, uh, the, <laughs> let's face it, it's hard, it's hard to judge, in my opinion, one period against another. Exactly. You know, how are you going to determine how well one player is going to do against the other? It's difficult. Yeah. Greatest sluggers? Oh, of course, you'd have to uh, go with uh, the Hall of Fame player, uh, of course, Josh Gibson. Right. You know. And who, who else, else they added? They added Buck Leonard and oh, Turkey course. Stearns. Yes, of course, two two fabulous players. Buck Leonard, still living and uh, a great slugger. Mm-hmm. Uh, unbelievable for his size because he was not that large of a person. Yeah, they called him uh, the Lou Gehrig. The Black Lou Gehrig, yeah, correct. The Black Lou Gehrig, and of course he played at sometimes on the same team with uh, Josh Gibson, so one can imagine. Uh, and when you get two two sluggers like that together, back-to-back, boy, can they produce. Boy, I mean, you exactly. know. Exactly. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that's how Ruth, uh, look, I, Ruth is my most favorite player in the world, but let's face it, when you have a Lou Gehrig coming before, or after, that is, Ruth, what? That's right. And of oh. course, oh my heavens! Of course, Josh Gibson was known as the uh, Black Bay Ruth too. They all had code yeah. names. It's it's interesting. How they, about how about best manager? Oh, best manager, of course, and he's currently still living. Who's my absolute favorite uh, is uh, John Buck O'Neill in Kansas City. He's been in uh, not only the Negro Leagues for twenty some, almost thirty years, but he's currently with the Kansas City Royals. So you have a span of almost a fifty year period. Mm-hmm where uh, a former Negro League player is still in organized baseball. It's, it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's, he's a hero in my eyes. You know who they said? C.I. Taylor, one of the Taylor boys, and Rube Foster. Oh, of course, yeah. Again, the, the early period. C.I., of course, the one of the uh, great originators, and Rube Foster, the father of baseball, who was instrumental in doing the first Black World Series, of course, yeah. And another great manager and player is uh, Ted Double Duty Radcliffe. Oh. Uh, he's just highly underestimated as a player manager in baseball for 45 years. Mm, mm. Hey, what, was it uh, Buck Leonard uh, or, or Buck O'Neill? It was, Buck, was it Buck O'Neill who discovered or brought uh, up uh, Ernie Banks? That is correct. He was very instrumental in uh, getting Ernie Banks up there to the uh, White Majors, and he was, and he was the uh, uh, founder of Finding Lou Brock. He was oh, the yeah, found him out and right, right. got him into the white majors. What right. would you say about what were the best baseball towns, or what was the best baseball town? Well, it's centered with the teams. You, of course, out into the Midwest, you, of course, had the Memphis Red Sox players in Memphis, Tennessee. Then in Birmingham, the Birmingham Black Barons. And, of course, you had uh, the Kansas City Monarchs in Kansas City. And then, of course, Pittsburgh, you had the, the two greatest rival teams ever was, the Pittsburgh Crawfords and the Homestead Grays, Homestead Grays mm-hmm. being out, of course. They were Homestead great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, in your area, Newark, New Jersey, you had the Newark Eagles, and then the Philadelphia Stars out of Philadelphia. 
and of course the Chicago American Giants out of Chicago. Each uh, each large town had their own great teams. What about the greatest infielder? The pardon? The greatest infielder. Infielder? Oh, I would say the gentleman just uh, recently passed away, George Giles, a couple weeks ago, uh, was a great one of one of the finest uh, first basemen for the Kansas City Monarchs and all-around great player. And, of course, uh, Buck Leonard, who played first base, too. And, of course, Ray Dandridge. Yeah, right they there. said Ray. Uh-huh. And uh, Ollie Marcel was one I'd never heard of. Oh, yes. All of, they called him the ghost. Uh-huh. And, yeah, that was his <laughs> Maybe nickname. that's why I hadn't heard of him. Yeah. One, one more question, because we're about out of time. Greatest outfielder. Outfielder, of course, uh, you can include in that... Uh, James Cool Papa Bell was a great outfielder. Everybody agreed on that one. You know, the, the, the best, as far as I'm concerned. A lot of them also said probably the best base runner. The best, ba- yeah, best base runner, too, the fastest. Yeah. <laughs> I can't see anybody any faster. Well, uh, I want to tell you, Bob, I want to thank you very much for being so generous over the last couple of months and providing us with scores and scores of your promo sets, which we've been giving away very generously, not only to our listeners, but to other people in the media, in hopes that they'll wake up and pay attention to this very important area. Well, Bob, I want to thank you and and your beautiful wife, Zoe, for so graciously over these past few months uh, attributing such a fine show to the uh, Negro League players. And and what I gather from their conversations, uh, they're just overwhelmed at what you're doing and the response. They're very happy. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. We look forward to receiving the books and we and, and, and talking to you again in the okay. coming months, okay? And thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Good night. Have a good evening. You too. All Bye. right. Well. See you next week. Is that right? That's right. See you next week on 21st Century Radio's Hieronymus and Company, where Negro League Baseball comes Came first. first. <laughs> <laughs> good night. <laughs> <laughs>